And so as I thought about it, the, the one passage in the Bible that in my mind serves as the most natural follow-up to what we saw on Wednesday night that I want to consider with you today is the classic text on the discipline of God found in Hebrews chapter 12. So take your Bibles and turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 12. This is a passage I think uh, I've lost track of how many times I've, I've turned to as a cross-reference in, in, in multiple sermons, and it dawned on me that I'd never actually preached this passage. I've never worked through it verse by verse just for my own benefit, but also for your benefit, and so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning, and I'm really excited to do that. Hebrews is a beautifully and carefully crafted letter written to show the superiority of Jesus over Judaism. And uh, we're, we're landed here towards the end of this letter, but this letter was written to Jews who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, but they were thinking of reverting back to their old religious system in order to avoid persecution by their fellow countrymen. One commentator summarized it well. He said, all the Jews to whom the book of Hebrews was written are undergoing persecution because of their break with Judaism. It was coming from their Jewish friends and relatives who resented their turning their backs on the religious customs and traditions in which they had been born and raised. And so as a result of all the persecution and affliction and suffering and hardship that they were experiencing, they had grown weary. And they were losing heart and feeling like throwing in the towel. And so the Spirit of God inspired this anonymous letter. We don't know exactly who wrote this letter, but we know why this letter was written. And that is to encourage and strengthen these folks to hang in there by reflecting on the faith of those who had gone before them and keeping their eyes on Jesus who suffered far worse things than any of them. Notice how this chapter begins, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, referring to chapter 11 and that list of people there in the hall of faith, as we referred to it, all those great saints from the Old Testament who faithfully followed the Lord. He said, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, really, that word witnesses should be examples surrounding us. In light of their example, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So the emphasis of these opening verses is clearly the idea of endurance. The word endure or endured Um, or endurance is used multiple times in these first four verses. But then notice how the author went on to remind and reassure these beleaguered believers that despite what it seemed or how it appeared, all that they were experiencing 
was part of God's loving discipline in their lives to make them more like him. Verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As you know, I've mentioned a time or two in my sermons over the years that I got spanked a lot when I was a kid. And for the most part, all of my spankings kind of blur together in my mind because it seemed to be such a frequent occurrence. But there are a few spankings that I will never forget and can still remember them as if they happened yesterday. Like the one and only time I ever thought it might be a good idea to run away from my mom when she was spanking me. I had done something that deserved a spanking. I couldn't tell you what it was. I had lots of different things that I did that deserved spankings. Um, and so my mom and I were going through the typical routine. Uh, we had it down. I mean, we just kind of knew what, how, how it went, you know? So she brought me in the kitchen. She would pull out the drawer where she kept that wooden spoon that she would make chocolate chip cookies and spank our bottoms with. Dual purpose spoon. And uh, she told me to put my hands on the counter and not to move. And if I didn't move, she would only give me Two spankings. She always told me the number so I knew how many was coming, and if I just kept my hands on that counter, we were good. Well, I don't know what happened that day, but I either got possessed by a demon or I went temporarily insane because I took off running down the hall thinking I could escape from my mother. And I only made it to the second or third step leading upstairs to my bedroom when she grabbed me from behind and dragged me back down the stairs while she was spanking me in the process. And I thought, this is not good. And so being the manipulative little boy that I was, I started yelling, you're going to kill me! You're going to kill me! Hoping that maybe the neighbor might hear and come to my rescue or something. I'm not sure. But to my shock and relief, my mom instantly stopped spanking me. And I thought to myself, I'll have to remember that line. That works. But then she grabbed me and marched me into the playroom where she sat me down on the couch and she plopped a Bible in front of me, put it on my lap, and she pointed to a verse and said, read that. And so with tears in my eyes and a sniveling little voice, I was <laughs> still getting over the, the spanking, right? This is what she had me read. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. 
You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Let's just say my view of my mom and the word of God went to a whole new level that day. And this is just one of a number of verses in Proverbs that talks about the importance of parents disciplining their children in love. Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Now, obviously, when I was a child, I did not enjoy getting spanked. But now that I'm an adult, I am so grateful that my parents love me enough to spank me. And I appreciate and respect them for their diligence to apply these verses to my rear end because now I am experiencing the long-term blessings and benefits of their loving discipline. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, a passage I would assume all of you parents have made your kids memorize. Like the, this is the first verse you had to memorize, right? Children, if you're here, children, and you can say it with me, go ahead. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Not only did my parents teach me the difference between right and wrong and what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Most importantly, they taught me to obey and honor them, which eventually transferred into me obeying and honoring God. And I'm just one example that there is a secret supernatural connection between the hiney and the heart. Kids, just so you know, there is, okay? And your parents know that. And that's why they apply the rod to your hiney because there's, a, there's something that is there that's connected to your heart, right? Well, with that, let's go to our text. The writer here wanted to reassure his readers that the suffering and hardship they were facing was a result of God's loving hand of discipline in their lives. And he wanted them to reflect on the long-term blessings and benefits of that loving discipline and to recognize that it is God's way of growing us and maturing us and conforming us to him. And why I think this passage is so practical is because like these suffering saints, we all tend to grow weary and, and to lose heart and we wrestle with the why whenever we face persecution or pain or adversity or trials or difficulties or sickness and we, we ask ourselves, are, are these a sign of God's anger and displeasure or do they just simply happen by chance? I mean, how should we view these things? How should we respond to these things as punishment or chastisement and is there even a difference? And so what I want you to see with me this morning in verses 5 through 11 is that there are four principles that will transform our perspective of the suffering and the hardship that we face and help us to process and persevere through whatever God sovereignly ordains for us or our loved ones. And my prayer is this morning that this passage, in the words of one of my favorite 
preachers, Chuck Swindoll, will put a little salve on the switch marks you've endured or are presently enduring as a result of spending time in God's woodshed. So what are these four principles? Number one, God's discipline proves that he loves us. Number two, God's discipline provides assurance that we are his child. Number three, God's discipline promotes conformity to him. And number four, God's discipline produces a right relationship with him. So let's look at this first principle here. God's discipline proves that he loves us. And the author there in verse five chided his readers for forgetting a very important passage from the Old Testament that they should have been familiar with. And since this passage had slipped their mind, they had lost perspective, and and that's why they were being tempted to give up. Notice he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, and then he goes on to to, uh, quote Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which is what the wise father told his son, He said, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Well, for starters, let's just consider the word discipline, because it is the word that is used the most in these verses. It's used nine times, and so clearly it's the point of this passage The word discipline in the Greek, paideia, refers to what parents do to train, to correct, to instruct, to educate, to warn their children in order to help them develop and mature as they ought to. And so God uses suffering and hardship to train, correct, instruct, educate, and warn us and help us mature in our spiritual lives. And I think it's important to to note here that this passage is not about being punished for wrongdoing, but about being chastised or disciplined by difficulty and affliction. And it's very important that we maintain a clear distinction between being punished by God and being disciplined by God. Again, the, the words are used synonymously, interchangeably in our culture, right? Well, you know, we punished our kids or we discipline our kids. It's, it's kind of the same thing. But I think theologically, it's important for us to keep these words distinct and be more specific. God punishes unbelievers. He disciplines believers. Unbelievers experience God's judicial wrath, whereas believers experience God's parental love. Granted, we suffer the consequences for our sins, but we will never experience God's judgment for our sin. God punished Christ on the cross once and for all for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for every wrong we've ever done, ever will do, and God does not exact double payment. And so even though we deserve God's wrath because of our sin, we will never have to experience God's wrath since Jesus endured all of God's wrath for us when he died on the cross. And that's why Paul said in Romans 8, 1, There is now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, all that to say, a Christian cannot be condemned, but he can be chastised. A.W. Pink has written a, a masterful exposition of the book of Hebrews, and this is what he had to say about this distinction between 
being punished and being disciplined. He said, this distinction should at once rebuke the thoughts which are so generally entertained among Christians. When the believer is smarting under the rod, let him not say, God is now punishing me for my sins. How many times have you thought that, right? Something bad happened to you, you say, oh, God must be mad at me, he's punishing me. He says, that can never be. That is most dishonoring to the blood of Christ. God is correcting thee in love, not smiting in wrath. Nor should the Christian regard the chastening of the Lord as a sort of necessary evil to which he must bow as submissively as possible. No, it proceeds from God's goodness and faithfulness and is one of the greatest blessings for which we have to thank him. He said chastisement is designed for our good to to promote our highest interests. Look beyond the rod to the all-wise hand that wields it. It's a good word from A.W. Tozier. So let's keep a distinction between God's punishment and God's chastisement or discipline. And God's discipline of his children takes three different forms. there's, There's corrective discipline, where God's purpose is obviously to correct us. There's preventative discipline, and God's purpose in that is to protect us. And then there's educative discipline, which is simply uh, God wanting to instruct us or or teach us things. And there's examples of all of these uh, in, you know, all over Scripture. Uh, For instance, in regards to corrective discipline, um, I guess the first example that should come to our mind in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel. God's people uh, were regularly being disciplined uh, by the Lord for their disobedience, their waywardness. And uh, God used the wilderness wanderings, for example, um, as a form of chastisement. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And of course, we've been learning through uh, our study of the book of Lamentations that, that God used the Babylonians as his, as his rod, uh, as, uh, as, as his tool of, of chastisement against the nation of Judah for their rebellion. And they came in and they destroyed uh, you know, Jerusalem and then they took them off into exile for 70 years. That was all part of God's discipline, correcting uh, his wayward people and, and, and seeking to bring them back to himself. Another example would be David, King David, the man after God's own heart who sinned grossly against the Lord by committing adultery with another man's wife, uh, ending up murdering his, her husband so that he could have her uh, to be his wife. And so God said this through the prophet Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And from the moment that David sinned with Bathsheba, um, his family just started falling apart at the seams. And it was a tragedy. His kids were raping one another, murdering one another, Even one raised up, started a coup against his father, David, and ran him out of Jerusalem. But that was very corrective for David. All you have to do is read Psalm 51, 
which is the, the best prayer of repentance anywhere in the scriptures, or, or Psalm 32 is another response psalm from David's experience. He said this, Psalm 32, verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so this was all very corrective for, for, for David, this discipline that he received from the Lord. Uh, the psalmist says it well, Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is, a good, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And so there's corrective discipline. There's also preventive discipline where God brings things into our lives to protect us, perhaps from engaging in some other uh, type of sin. Uh, Dave, or excuse me, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would be a good example uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talking about the thorn in the flesh because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, if you've read any of Paul's letters, you never get any hint that he's exalting himself, do you? He's very humble. He's always saying, I am what I am by the grace of God. He's giving God all the glory. He's pointing to Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Why, how did he become so humble, especially in light of all that he knew, uh, all the great ministry opportunities God gave him, the amazing uh, ministry history he had, all the people that came to know Christ through him. It'd be very easy for him to get puffed up with pride. Well, God said, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get puffed up with pride, so I'm going to send this thorn in his flesh. Some say it was something to do phys phys physically, maybe something with his eyes. Um, I think it's probably better understood, a messenger of Satan to torment me, probably a, a member of the church in Corinth, a false teacher that was constantly, you know, um, nipping at his heels and undermining his ministry. He said, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and in, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So this was all to protect Paul and prevent him from being prideful. And then there's educative discipline, which is God just wanting to teach us something. Uh, I think about Job. Job would be the classic example of that. Did, did Job do anything wrong? Did, did he do anything to deserve losing all of his kids, losing all of his wealth, um, losing his health? No. What was that all about? Well, at the end of the book of Job, Job 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, I had no business trying to figure out what you were up to, trying to explain why all these things were happening. That, that was out of my league. That was above my pay grade. 
He says, here now, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. As far as we know, Job went to heaven never getting the answer why, learning the answer why he, he went through all that he went through. He knows now, but he didn't know then. And really the book of Job is not so much about why God's people suffer, but why do God's people worship him even when they suffer? And so this was very educative uh, for Job. In fact, I love what it says in Job 5.17, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. I mean, coming from Job, how happy is the man whom God reproves? That's saying something. That's exemplary, right? Well, he says don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. The father in, in Proverbs, back in Hebrews chapter 12, said essentially the same thing to his son regarding discipline. Notice he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. So he points out two perils when it comes to suffering and hardship. Don't despise it and don't despair because of it. First of all, we shouldn't make light of it. We shouldn't minimize it. We shouldn't blow it off. We shouldn't underestimate it to the point where we fail to learn anything from it. We shouldn't be indifferent to it, in other words. We shouldn't complain about it. We shouldn't be careless about it. No, we should be, do what the prophet Haggai said to his people, uh, the people of God in Haggai 1.5, consider your ways. So when you're going through some hardship, you're experiencing some difficulty, don't just say, well, whatever. Um, no, consider your ways and say, what, what is this? Is this... Is this corrective? Is this perhaps preventative? Is this merely educative? Uh, what is God doing? And consider your ways and consider what the Lord might be doing. Uh, on the other hand, don't make this bigger than it is. Don't blow it out of proportion. Don't blow it off, but don't blow it out of proportion either. Don't over-exaggerate it to the point that, that it overwhelms you and causes you to lose heart and to shut down and despair and become despondent and depressed. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. What does it say? No temptation, and you could insert the word trial in there. It's the same words. One word used for trial and temptation. No trial has overtaken you, but that which is common to man and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. So the dad told his son, avoid two things. Don't, don't not think about it enough. That's the first thing. Don't, don't, don't not think about it enough. The other is don't overthink it. Don't be callous towards it and don't collapse under it. We must always remember that divine discipline is evidence of divine love. Notice he says, verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, whatever the experience, we can be sure that his chastening hand is controlled by his loving heart. His chastening hand is controlled by his loving heart. 
I'll never forget an experience I had years ago with a family in our church. Their daughter was diagnosed with a rare form of childhood cancer called uh, neuroblastoma. I think she was about three at the time, and she was down in the medical center in Houston, downtown, and I went down to visit them, and and, uh, honestly, I did not have a clue what I was going to say to try to be a comfort and an encouragement to this family. And thankfully, I didn't have to say anything because this mom was an encouragement to me and a blessing to me. And, And she said what I needed to hear. And I'll never forget, I walked into that hospital room and there was that mom sitting next to the bed with her daughter all hooked up to things and she shot up in her seat from her seat and she looked at me and she said, Ken, I have got to believe that this is God loving us. Was not expecting to hear that. Um, talk about someone who was counseling themselves and, and speaking to themselves and preaching to themselves. She was working through this, the painful uh, situation and all the contrary emotions and the feelings and she just brought it back to, you know what? I'm confident of one thing, God loves us. God loves our family, God loves our little girl. And so this is part of his love. That took a lot of faith, didn't it? But that's the first thing that we need to remember here is that God's discipline um, proves how much he loves us. Secondly, God's discipline provides assurance that we're his child. God's discipline provides assurance that we hear his child. Notice verse 7, and he plays off this last uh, verse in Proverbs there, verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the writer appealed here to the universal truth that every father knows if a child is left to themselves, they will grow up to be a selfish little tyrant. And so they need to be corrected. They need to be instructed. They need to be disciplined. Now, even though we know that, we don't always like that. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, said this, many would rather have a benevolent grandfather in heaven whose prime interest is our contentment than have a father whose prime interest is our character. There's typically a little bit of a difference in how parents deal with their kids and how the grandparents deal with their grandkids, right? A little different focus, a little different temperament, a little different goal, perhaps, um, Kids go to their grandparents to get spoiled, right? And then they send them back to get disciplined, right? You got to fix all the things that grandma and grandpa spoiled them with. But notice he says, if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Basically what the writer was saying here is that God does not let his kids get away with sin. I don't know about you, but... I, I can't get away with sin. I try, trust me, I try. To my shame, I try, but I can't. And, and while that in my flesh can be frustrating at times, it is so comforting, it is so reassuring. 
that God cares what I'm doing and where I'm going and who I'm with and all those things. The point is this. If you can sin and feel no conviction whatsoever and you can sin and experience no consequences whatsoever, that means you're not one of God's kids. You ever seen a kid misbehaving in a store or a restaurant? I mean, just like throwing a tantrum. And the parent's not doing anything, just letting them go. Or they're doing everything they can to, you know, appease them um, or threaten them. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half. Two and three quarters, right? I think we've all been guilty of doing that one time until we realized, what am I actually doing here? I'm training my kids to delay their obedience. Instead of what we, we, we tried to teach our kids based on Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So you need to obey right away with the right attitude. Right away with the right attitude. That's God's standard. And we need to hold our kids to that standard, not because it's our standard, it's God's standard. Well, when I see those kids sometimes and I see those parents struggling, I just, I'm like, hey, can I, can I borrow your kid just for a few days? And, uh, you know, well, I don't. I don't, like, I want to go over and spank them right then and there, right? But I don't. Why? Because I don't want to get arrested, number one. But number two, um, they're not my kid. It's not my responsibility. Not my problem. See, getting spanked is a sign of sonship. And so the next time you experience the discipline of the Lord in your life, you should thank him for proving once again that he loves you and that you're one of his kids. Remember what David said in Psalm 23, verse 4? This is the, 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 the psalm of the shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He said, thy rod and thy staff, thy rod and thy staff, they scare me. Isn't that what it says? No, thy rod and thy staff, What? They comfort me. How comforting it is to know, hey, I'm, I'm safe. I'm, I'm in God's family. Because, man, I, I, I just can't get away with anything. And uh, I just, you know, keep getting uh, disciplined by the Lord. And that's a, that's a comforting thing. So, God's discipline proves how much God loves us. God's discipline provides assurance that we are his child. Thirdly, God's discipline promotes conformity to him. God's discipline promotes conformity to him. Look at verse 9. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Listen, no matter how many times my dad said, Ken, Kenny, he'd call me Kenny, pull your pants down, and would pull the belt out of his, you know, belt loops. Um, it never, ever made me think that my dad hated me. It was obvious to me that he wanted the best for me. And so rather than causing me to resent my dad, it made me respect him. In fact, when it came time to decide, you know, our wedding party, when Kel and I got married, I asked my dad to be my best man. 
I said, I know this might be weird, Dad. I don't know that I've ever seen it before, but you're the guy I respect the most. Would you be my best man? Well, that's just, that's just earthly, human level here. Notice what he says. He says, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, how much more should we be submissive to the Father, our Heavenly Father, if that's the way we are to our earthly fathers, how much more should we be to our Heavenly Father, to our spiritual Father, and live? You know, there's, I think, a lot of confusion in the world about what does it mean to to really live. What's life all about, man? What, you know, I want to I really live. Or that guy's really living it. He's really living it up, right? Well, I think the secret to experiencing abundant life, the kind of life that Christ promised to provide us once we commit our lives to following him, the, the secret to experiencing that abundant life is humbly submitting to God and his will for our lives. It's honoring and obeying him. It's living how he wants us to live, doing the things that he tells us to do and not doing the things that he tells us not to do. And when we stay on the straight and narrow path of obedience, we experience life the way God intended and avoid those things that ruin our lives. Again, the dad in Proverbs chapter 6 Verse 20 says this, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you, for example, from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. In other words, she will destroy your life. He goes on in chapter 10, verse 16. The wages of the righteous is life, the income of the wicked punishment, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. So when we fail to submit to God and we resent his discipline, we, we resist his discipline, we run away from his discipline, he has to teach us the same lessons over and over again, but using more difficult methods each time. And we're never going to get promoted to the next grade level until we learn the lesson that God wants us to learn. And the point is this, that God takes rebellion seriously. Especially when it comes to children rebelling against their parents. This is probably the other verse that some of you parents had your kids memorize as soon as they could memorize scripture. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, hey, we've done our job. We've done the best we could. We've tried to discipline them. We tried to chastise them, but they refuse to submit to our leadership 
They refuse to honor and obey us. Verse 21, it says, And all the men of the city shall stone him to death, so that you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Wow. If God's law was still um, applicable in that, on that point today, I mean, there'd be a lot of dead bodies strewn all over the place. And it would be mostly teenagers. But just because rebellious kids are no longer subject to capital punishment, God still considers them worthy of death. And if a child of of his persistently rebels against him and stubbornly refuses to profit from his correction and, and instruction, it might cost them their life. I've referenced this before, but there's an interesting verse in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 that says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about there? What is this sin leading to death? Is this like, you know, the, the unpardonable sin? This is like, you know, the, the, the sin of murder, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of suicide, whatever, you know, some gross sin like that. Now, I think what the sin unto death is simply this, that rather than allowing a Christian to ruin their life further or bring more disgrace on the name of Christ, God may just choose to end their life and take them home. I'm just taking you out. And the Corinthians are an example of that. God did that in the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, they were dishonoring Christ in the communion service. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And he wasn't talking about dozing off in church there. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Notice the distinction there between being disciplined by the Lord and being condemned, right, by the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira would be another example. Acts chapter 5, they lied and they died. End of story. Again, we have to be very careful interpreting the providence of God and the comings and goings of his people. I think in my lifetime, I can only think of one, one occasion where I knew of someone that passed away in a very um, bad car accident. And based on their lifestyle and based on what I knew of them, I thought, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what that was all about. Of course, I don't know for sure. Only God knows, but I just, I, it, made me, it made me wonder. Well, notice the, the rest there of, of the, this point, verse 10, talking about our earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So as parents, we, we do the best We can, right, to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we all make mistakes. We have good intentions, but we are 
imperfect parents at the end of the day. We're fallible. We're inconsistent. We, we're unfair at times. We, we fail to discipline when you know, we should or, or we over-discipline or sometimes we discipline with the wrong motives. We discipline in anger. We, we discipline in the wrong way at the wrong time. Sometimes we even discipline the wrong kid. You ever done that? You found out after it was all said and done, you, you spanked the wrong kid. But God makes no such mistakes. He's infallible. He's an infallible father who is always right, who's always fair, who's always consistent, who always uses discipline that fits the offense. One commentator put it this way, each stroke God administers is weighed by him in fairness and firmness to suit our needs exactly and to bring us to our senses, not lay us senseless in the dust. In other words, God doesn't just beat us to a pulp and leave us there groveling in the dirt. He's very purposeful. He's very intentional. And the training, the, the correction, the instruction that he provides us doesn't end when we move out and we live on our own, right? We're living on our own. It, it lasts our entire lives, even into our senior years. Those of you that got the gray hairs in here this, in, in our second service, you, you know exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You're never home free, right? You think, man, I'm old and I should, have, I should be past all this stuff. But there's still just things that God is working on in your life, right, to make you more like him. I just turned 56 last week and I'm thankful that my parents aren't still spanking me anymore. That'd be embarrassing. But guess what? God's still spanking me. And it'll never stop until the day I die. Because he's not finished with me. And he won't be until I'm like him. And what does he want? He wants us to be holy like he is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be holy as I am holy. And so our entire life, God is chiseling away on our character to make us more like himself. And the refining process is painful, but it's very purposeful. Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and those that he has foreknown, uh, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So human discipline prepares us to engage with our fellow humans during this present life on earth, whereas divine discipline is preparing us to engage with God for all eternity in heaven. So God's discipline promotes holiness. And then lastly, number four, God's discipline produces a right relationship with him. God's discipline produces a right relationship with him. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Whenever a parent has to discipline their child, it's not an enjoyable experience for either the parent or the child. No child enjoys getting spanked. No parent enjoys spanking their child. That's why, kids, you may have heard your parents say from time to time, hey, this is going to hurt me as much as it's going to hurt you. And you're like, well, yeah, right. Give me that rod and I'll, we'll see who, you know, going to hurt who here, right? That's true for every godly parent. It's godlike. Why? Because God suffers when we suffer. And that's the, that's the price of love, when you love your kids. Isaiah 63, 
Verse 7, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In their affliction, he was afflicted. It pained God to have to see his kids wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. It pained him to see them get overthrown by the Babylonians, these pagan, idol-worshiping people, and to spend 70 years outside of the promised land. It pained him. And we've learned from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 33, for God does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. It's not like he has some, gets some sick pleasure out of disciplining us. And so all discipline at the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, instead of continuing to do wrong, we learn to do what is right, which results in peace with God rather than being at war with God, being on the outs with God. And this righteousness is not referring to imputed righteousness, the, the righteousness that we're given uh, by God in Christ for our salvation. This is just talking about practical righteousness. This is talking about working out our relationship with the Lord on a day-to-day basis once we are his children. This is more of a fellowship type of, of word here. And so when a child stops rebelling against their, their father and submits to the disciplinary process, their relationship with their father is restored and they enjoy sweet, intimate fellowship once again. Amen? That was my favorite part of the disciplinary process with our kids was taking them into the bathroom or their bedroom and starting the the process and saying, hey, so why are we here? (laughs) What did you do? And what does God say now that dad has to do? Administer the spankings, they're obviously crying. You hug them, right? You just hold them. Let them, let them work it out. Just hold them while they cry. And then they seek forgiveness. You offer forgiveness and dry their tears and away they go. And you're back in a right relationship with them, right? No, no doghouse, no grounding, right? No, hey, we're good. We resolve that. The basic point of this passage here in Hebrews 12, I think, is simply how we as God's children should view and respond to his discipline in our lives. And God's own son, Jesus Christ, serves as our example to follow. And it's perfect because it's right here in the book of Hebrews. Notice back in Hebrews 2, just turn back a couple pages, and this is where we'll close. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So Jesus being God did, was, was, was perfect, right? He didn't need to be perfected. However, this is, I think, a reference to his humanness that God used suffering to perfect the author of our salvation. He goes on to 
to expand on this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Look at what it says there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, talking about Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Okay, obviously he's talking about Jesus and his humanness, right? Because God can't learn anything. But Jesus as a man... It says, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So here was the perfect God-man experiencing the Father's discipline as a human being. And you may remember the story in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus had traveled with his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, to Jerusalem and uh, had a great time. And then they all left and headed back towards Nazareth. And somewhere along the way, Mary's like, hey, where's Jesus? Joseph's like, I don't know. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And they can't find him anywhere. And they freak out. And they rush back to Jerusalem and they, they go all over the place looking for Jesus and they finally find him in the synagogue. And of course, Mary, as a typical mother, went off on her son and said, you, you, we were worried sick. Why, why would you do this to us? And he's like, Mom, you knew this is where you could find me. And I love this, the way Luke records it. It says, but they did not understand the statement which he made to them. So they still hadn't connected all the dots yet. So here's the, here's the perfect teenager. He was about 12 at the time. Perfect teenager trying to get along with imperfect parents. I mean, Jesus was the only kid who ever lived who could say to his parents, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world. <laughs> only one who could ever say that, right? But notice, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It was all part of God's process for his son Jesus, right? To grow up as a little boy and then a teenager and then a man. But he learned all that he needed to learn as a human, right? By living in subjection to his parents and their authority and their discipline. Thank you, Father, for loving us enough to discipline us. Your word says, blessed is the man whom you chasten. Thank you for the example that you've given us in Jesus, someone we can follow um, to try to put this passage into practice in our lives. I pray that we would truly welcome your discipline since we know it's designed to make us more of who you want us to be. Help us not to reject it, not to resist it, not to run away from it, but to submit to it and embrace it for our good and ultimately for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.